Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. Ernie wanted to get in that car so bad and drive it around the racetrack. He rode that tractor with a brush on it, and he'd go out and try to drive it around. I couldn't wait to get home and walk into the restaurant and get me some breakfast. And you all are in here squalling about this little boy out here trying to make a living because you all can't beat him. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Q, where and Steve this week, I am thankful to be here. <laughs> well, I bet you are. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, look, 
Thursday, everybody that keeps up with us on Twitter, you know basically what happened. But Thursday, I was doing my walk, and I had just turned on to a street, and there was no sidewalk. So I was walking on the side of the road, and this lady, she just about plowed me over, Steve. Mm. And that was as close a call as I had ever come. And when she was headed my way, I jumped into the ditch that was next to me. And if I had not had my trekking poles for a little bit of stability, I would have gotten hurt. My ankle still feels a little tenderish, but it's okay. I mean, it's nothing that I can't manage or whatever, but I walked probably another quarter of a mile, half a mile, and just kind of sat down to collect myself. And while I was sitting there, one of the town police officers that I know, he stopped by and he asked me if I was okay. At that point, I'd had enough. And for the first time in a long time, I accepted a ride back to my car and did not finish out my walk. And and that was... Rick, those are extenuating circumstances. I would have not finished my walk either had I been (laughs) off the road like that. Well, you know, that was one thing. And I was very sore. I don't know what in particular happened that made me so sore, but I was very sore that afternoon. And that afternoon, it started raining. And when it rains really hard, really fast at our house, we get water in the basement. Yeah, your house floats. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> Give me just a little bit of a break. But yeah, we had to manage that all day on Friday. We had to manage that all day on Saturday. Finally got everything out and it's on the way to being dry now. We are on the list to have the drainage redone around our house. And hopefully that's going to take care of the issue. But Every time it rains now, we just kind of hold our breath. But, yeah, it was like, what else can we deal with this week? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, water is enough. Uh, Jumping into a ditch to save your life. Now, that is a very scary thing. Rick, I hope you never face that again. Well, I hope I don't either. Steve, the scary thing is that lady, she never saw me. I was going to ask you. She She never never knew you. She never slowed down. She never hit her brake lights, nothing. And I'm standing there in that ditch and I'm looking back at her and I, well, let's just say this is a family oriented podcast and I can't so say. Yes, yeah, I say you broke a few commandments. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. And I apologized for that immediately. But hey, uh, sometimes people just need cussing. <laughs> and she did at that moment so steve anyway this week we are going to share the second part of our interview with larry mcclure and this week he discusses morgan mcclure motorsports's short-lived relationship with phil parsons and their replacement driver who was that replacement driver ernie Irvin. ernie Irvin and steve When Ernie joined Morgan McClure Motorsports, that's when his career skyrocketed, and that's what put Morgan McClure Motorsports on the NASCAR map. You are exactly right about that. A great turnaround for them. Along with that turnaround, they got a win at Bristol in August of 1990. Then the following February, they got the Daytona 500 win, and who can forget that Daytona 500 in particular with everything that was going on with the Gulf War 
and the national anthem that Mike Powell sang and, and just that show of patriotism. But along with that success, there were most definitely some controversies that Ernie got himself into. They basically culminated in an apology during the Talladega drivers meeting in 1992. During that particular time, Ernie was the subject of a lot of news. And a whole lot of that news did not take place on the track. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the August 1st, 1991 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That issue featured coverage of Dale Earnhardt's fifth win at Talladega, which made him the track's all-time leader in victories. And Steve, that was also his third victory in the last four races there. So, he was pretty doggone good at Talladega. Oh, he was one of the best, positively one of the best. Going into that race, the talk was about Ernie Irvin and his apology, and this issue had that story. Also in this issue, four drivers were not happy with each other after the race. And Steve, they were so unhappy <laughs> with each other. Davy Allison was so mad after that race that he went into his holler and punched the wall. And broke prom- his hand. Promptly broke his hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way, Rick. When it comes to racing at Talladega or Daytona, for that matter, there's a word called teamwork, which comes into play in the high-speed draft. Ford, at this particular Talladega race, forgot that word. <laughs> and it did not bode well for them. Finally, we have new Patreon support this week from Jamie Creasy and Eric Gissendonner. And Eric, listen, I know that I probably just butchered your last name, and I apologize for that. Eric Gissendonner, or Danner, maybe. Eric Gissendanner. Eric, hey, Eric, thank you for the support. (laughs) Eric, we like you, Eric. Thank you. (laughs) One of our faithful Patreon supporters, and also he has been on the Zoom call a few times. So, Eric, man, I apologize. I've got a first name that's very difficult to pronounce. It's actually the, my first name, Steve, is actually the first spelling word that I ever missed in grade school. Really? Yes. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay, moving right along. (laughs) Support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. They have been solely responsible for getting us to where we are, our support on Patreon, our support on PayPal, QWare, Brian Kelb, they have gotten us to where we are today. And hopefully they're going to continue on for the ride because as we've mentioned several times, we've got some pretty cool things on the horizon. Yes, we do. And we certainly do welcome the support of all of our listeners and QWare and Brian. If you can, please help us out on a monthly basis at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Larry... Phil Parsons joined the team for the start of the 1990 season, but he lasted just three races. What happened? Well, we, we went to Daytona, one of the fastest cars in practice. 
way fast. And he wrecked. We felt like he wrecked. Got in a situation and wrecked. And then we went to Richmond and uh, wrecked three race cars that one weekend. And uh, uh, Rudd Pittman was uh, our engine builder, and he and I were... I guess I relied on him for his experience, and uh, we came back from Richmond. We drove back from Richmond that night, and I said, well, we just can't. We agreed that he wasn't going to work with us. So, um, and after, you know, after we'd hired him, right after we hired him, he told me he had to go have cataract surgery. And I said, well, I didn't even know really what cataract surgery was, and so he did. So I don't know if he was having some kind of problem that was that helped create that but but uh he was a great guy i mean i I liked him terrific guy personality and his family and being in but it just didn't work out so ernie irvin how did he wind up in your car was he the only guy that you looked at or were there maybe other candidates well when rick left at the fall bristol race he told me i knew he was leaving uh i think it was was it 88 89. 89. Oh, he told me, he said, uh, right there's a guy you might, you might think about putting in your car because he's a hard race car driver. Talking about Ernie? Ernie. Okay. And he was driving for, what's his name? At DK? Richmond? No. At that time, he was driving for DK, but he went to drive for Junie Don, Don Levy. Junie Don Levy. Okay. And this was like two or three races in the season. Well, Junie's, I called Junie. And I told Junie I was interested in Rick. What was he going to do? Uh, he said, Larry, I'm glad you called me. He said, we thought we had this sponsorship deal put together, but it's fallen through, and I'd love for you to get this boy to drive your car because I think he could have success. So uh, we called him, and before we, before we hired him, we went to Atlanta to test at that time, you could test it the week prior to the race. With Ernie? With Ernie. We Going were, into 1990? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. We we went to Atlanta and tested before the Atlanta race. Okay. Before yeah. the Atlanta race. Yes. And that was like the third race or fourth race of yes, whatever it was. Yeah. Okay. We went down and spent three days, and it rained. Rain. First day. Rain the south. Second day. Third day, it was raining. And Ernie wanted to get in that car so bad and drive it around the racetrack that he rode that uh, tractor with a brush on it and he'd go out and, <laughs> and try to drive the racetrack. He was driving the track oh, yeah, himself, to, was he really? Yes, he was. You ask him. Uh, and um, we put him in the car finally at 4 o'clock and he made five laps for us. And we was bad fast. So we said, okay, we'll let you drive it in Atlanta. And uh, at that time, Ernie was working over there putting bleachers in the Charlotte Motor Speedway. I think that was his job. And he said, okay. We go down there and we start on last year's points, which was, I think it was 20th or something like that. And we ended up uh, finishing second. Uh, So, but during that race, I thought my car had gained 100 horsepower. You know, it just makes everybody look better. You know, yeah, you look yeah. smarter. You, your crew chief looks 
great and you pit crew looks better uh but i'm telling you he he put the put the metal to the floor and and it showed us how good or how fast our car was so you didn't test him going into the 1990 season no okay all right that's what i thought i heard you say no Okay. First, his first time in our race car was Atlanta at that test for five laps. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. He finishes well in Atlanta. I think he finished third. Then all of a sudden, he reels off several top ten qualifying runs in a row. And all of a sudden, Morgan McClure Motorsports is competitive. Right. And I'm talking about competitive. Right. What did Ernie Irvin bring to the table that had been missing? All he brought was his abilities. You know, he didn't bring any money, didn't bring any uh, past experience because he hadn't driven that many race cars, with the exception of the cars he had driven on the West Coast before he came to, you know, cup racing or bush racing. But he just uh, had that desire to win. He didn't want anybody to beat him, and he he, he could get behind. He loved to follow, he'd follow Earnhardt. He didn't want to follow him, but he loved to follow him because he could learn from him. And um, later that you know, he, he he could run. He knew how to run. Knew how to race. And then we helped him where his shortcomings were. I mean, he would exhaust himself sometime, and we had to... I mean, after a race, you'd have to pull him out. You'd have to help him out of the car. You remember seeing uh, Darrell Walter and some of these guys at, at Bristol, you have to oh, pull yeah? him out of the car? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like that at Michigan or anywhere. I don't know. He'd just He'd come out, and he'd be... He'd give it everything he had, and that that was nice, you know. You go to Bristol in the spring. You sit on the pole. That was your first pole, I believe. Yes. Then you come back in August and you win the race. Take me through that weekend of the night race in particular. What do you remember about that? Well, I remember we were we we were fast, and prior to the race, Kodak was. Uh, had paid attention to and uh, up until then from 86 87 88 89 we'd had a one-year deal with them so prior to that race we signed a three-year deal with with kodak and uh, and then went to race for him so it was a cinderella story in, in a way yeah. and i can remember we went to uh prior to the race we went down to uh they had a branch, uh, Eastman, down in Kingsport, and they had a fan club down there that had, uh, and they had, all of them, had, they had uh, pillows, yellow pillows with a red number four on them. And I remember that night when we were uh, running, Rusty Spotter said, Rusty, and look here, what do you see up in the stands up here? You see all them yelling, red number fours on it? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, if you wreck him, we won't get out of here. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, that was pretty cool. But uh, it was it was great winning, you know, Bristol, our home track, and what we felt like was our home track. And uh, and he and Rusty, and I'm telling you, they raced. Yeah, they did. They, yeah. raced, they raced hard and, and uh, made me feel great. I said, we're, we're finally making some headway. What was the response of the community around here after that first win? What was it like to come back to the shop? Oh, man, it was, it was great. We had this little local hangout, 
PJ Browns, and we uh, everybody knew us. Came down there. I don't know if somebody announced it on the radio or whatever, but there was all kinds of people down there. But it was terrific. I mean, they had put banners uh, across some of the streets down here, and it, it was it was big for us. I mean, it put us and Abingdon, and we were always. Uh, I try to mention Southwest Virginia and Abingdon, Virginia, and, and uh, great force. Well, if winning at Bristol for an Abingdon-based team is a big deal. What did it mean to win the Daytona 500? Wow. You know, after that race that night, I drove home. Me and my wife and their, our sister-in-law and brother-in-law were in Florida. Uh, and I didn't sleep a wink at night. I couldn't wait to get home and walk into the restaurant and get me some breakfast. And, or get a, we, stopped three, we stopped three or four places to get newspapers to see if anybody had covered it. But Yeah. And they had, I mean, but it was, it was something else, man. I mean, you just—it's kind of—you've never been there before. You really don't know what a feat that is. Kind of pinch yourself and go on. What stands out to you about the race? Well, we had. Listen, there was a lot of stories about that race. We got—we get to Daytona and we're fast. And I, I think we ran good in the clash. If we were in the clash, I'm not sure you'd have to look that up and see. Well, you won the pole, so yeah, you would yeah. have been in the clash. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we were fast, and you know, when you're fast like that, everybody thinks you're maybe doing something. And at that time, you know, prior to that, they had caught uh, some other teams with some moving parts in their manifolds and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, they made you drill your manifold, put set screws in it to keep the center section from moving. And uh, they checked our manifold, checked our manifold. And uh, prior to qualifying, uh, they told me, uh, now this, if this, if this section, if anything moves in this manifold after, not after qualifying, after the 125, after the 125, uh, we're going to... Uh, disallow you for the race and I said wow now this is before the 125 I said well the way I read, read the rule book I don't really have to run the 125 because I'm starting on the pole yeah isn't that right and they said well you go ahead and run this race I think it'll be okay so I didn't after after the 125 I took that manifold off and put it in the truck. We said, well, we're not going to run that manifold anymore. And I believe me, there was nothing wrong with it, nothing illegal about it. And then we had our last practice before the 500. I go over to Dick Beatty, and I said, Dick, here's this manifold. Would you look at it and tell me if it's legal or not legal before I put it on my motor? I, I, I didn't even practice with it today because I didn't, uh, I felt like... You know, I might have trouble. I want you to look at it and tell me what you think. So he looked at it before before uh, the 500. said, well, I don't see a thing wrong with it. So I go back at night. I see Ernie and Tony coming out of the hotel. They're going to take their wives out to eat. I go upstairs to the bar and see uh, Runt. So we have a beer and uh, discuss that manifold. And I said, well, I'm going to change the manifold because I know – it, it's not a lot, but it may be one or two horsepower, maybe five horsepower. I want to put it on. So he and I get up the next morning, 
we go to racetrack, they let us in early at 5 o'clock, and we change that manifold. And at that time, you know, a manifold's not like it is today. It's It was a whole base plate that covered up the the valve uh, valve part of the push rods and lifters and all that. That valley pan that goes in there, it was made onto the manifold. So we had to glue it on. And ironically, after the race, it was still wet. The silicon, it hadn't dried completely. Wow. Well, we started to race. And they black flag us for leaving, for um, speeding on pit road. And we were the last pit. Yeah. But they got they got us for that, and they waited until one to go before they black flagged us. So I was three-fourths of a lap down when the green came out. And we we just said, I turned around. No caution, and we ran, and we made it up, and we, um, I don't know, there was a a caution. 15, I'm not, I can't remember how many laps. It was before the end of the race. And I think there was a caution, I think inside 10 laps, I think when Earnhardt and Davey got together well, on the back stretch. The, they got together behind us. Okay, yeah. Because we had passed them. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then we thought we might be out of gas, you know. <laughs> And, and um, I'll never forget my brother, Ed, older brother. He said, uh, Sterling was behind us. He was second. He said, Ed said, uh, hey, Spotter, see if uh, Sterling will push us around if we if it quits running. Sterling said, yeah, I will next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we made it yeah. and won the race. This is great. You've mentioned Runt Pittman yep. two or three times. He started building engines for the team in 1989, I believe. Right. Tell me about Runt. What made his engine so stout on super speedways in particular? He's smart. He worked, listen, he worked uh, seven days a week on those motors. I mean, he'd go home and sleep a little bit, and Sundays he'd go to church, and we weren't racing. And during that whole off season, we, we worked on engines, manifolds, engines, run, manifolds, manifolds. Uh, you know, trying to see what would help, and and we found a lot of things that, you know, that that helped us. And but most of it came from his ingenuity on the motors. He's smart. You know, if you look back, he he was an engine builder for Hoss Ellington, and everybody remembers the Allisons and Yarbers getting together. Well, Runt was building those motors too, so yeah. he was smart. And then we had. We had help from General Motors, too. Of course, General Motors helped all their teams. But uh, that guy, their name was Covey, and he, he he worked on the valve train stuff, and he helped us quite a bit. Larry, Ernie was no stranger to controversy during his time in the four car. There was Darlington in 1990 in just his second race for you guys, then the first Talladega race in 1991, then Pocono later that year. Was his aggressive something that the two of you had talked about maybe trying to rein in? Or were you content to just let Ernie be Ernie behind the wheel? Well, being content caused us caused a lot of problems. Uh, Ernie was a really hard-headed and strong-minded. Uh, I, you know, I felt like he listened to me some, but he would still, it was easy for him to get in trouble. He was always trying to push it, you know, over the, 
to the edge, or maybe not over the edge, but yeah. And a lot of times we went over the edge, and um, and you may have a question about it, but I remember there was talk. There was talk about them kicking us out of racing that year. Had you heard that? I knew that it was getting pretty touchy. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Kyle Petty broke his right broke his uh, leg, and then uh, Neil Bunny got hurt at uh, the first wreck we had in Darlington. Darlington. Yeah. There were some people got hurt, but, you know, it takes two to tango. Uh, he was racing side by side with that car that when we wrecked at Darlington uh, for five for five laps, and he was too hard-headed to give up. And, and you can't, I mean, you can get on the radio and say something, but you can't really, at that time, say something to somebody and, and they'll listen. But... Uh, he was he was probably raced over his head, but that's probably what made him so good later. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And um, but I remember we went to Talladega. By the time we got back to the second Talladega, everybody was up in arms. I get to the racetrack early. I always go in with the race team. Uh, they send somebody over from Bill Francis' office. To see me, they, he wanted to see me, so I go over, I go in, and uh, Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, um, from down in Tennessee. What's the name? Um, see those. The see was Petty Earnhardt and Jaws, Daryl, Daryl, Daryl Walter. Yeah, we're sitting there. And Bill. So come on in, Larry. <laughs> Bill straight up. I mean, I'm telling you, I loved him to death. He, he was, listen, nothing phased him. Didn't seem like he There was a greeting committee, wasn't it? I'm telling Good you. Good night. And, and, you know, I hadn't had that much one-on-one -on -one with any of those guys. Uh, I really didn't know him. And, and uh, it said, uh, Bill said, Larry, these guys won't kick your race car driver out of racing. They think he's uh, too reckless, hurting too many people. What do you think about it? And he and I answered. I said, Richard Petty, you've hit every SOB that races around the racetrack. <laughs> I said, you've wrecked him. I said, Daryl, look how many people you've wrecked to win. And I said, Earnhardt, they'd follow you to the toilet, and you wreck everybody that gets around you. If they won't let you buy them, you're going to knock them out of the way. And you all are in here squalling about this little boy out here trying to make a living because you all can't beat him. I said, I'll talk to him. They said, well, would you, uh, Mr. France said, would you send Ernie over here when he comes in? I said, yeah. So that was it. I left. Well, when I, after I said those things, Bill France said, well, what do you think about that, boys? To the to the three guys there. And nobody really said anything. They didn't, they didn't say anything. So I left. Because that meeting wasn't going anywhere. So I went back and I told Ernie, I said, now Ernie, I said, these people are serious about kicking you out of racing. I said, you want the best thing that I can think of. If you get up in the driver's meeting, Ask for it before the driver's meeting. Tell them you'd like to say something. And tell everybody that you're sorry if you've hurt people and 
driving over your head a little bit or whatever. And just, uh, and I said, by doing that, you're putting it on them. And you know, Buddy Baker wrecked us that race. This, yeah, it, I guess, I don't know if he meant it or not, but it looked kind of suspicious. So, so getting up in the driver's meeting was your idea? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, what was his reaction? Ernie's just like this. You know, he's just happy-go-lucky. He, he said, well, okay, if that's what you think I need to do. And he did a great job. I mean, he, did, he did a great job. But he wasn't going to apologize to anybody. He's, but he did, and, and saying it helped him, I think, and, as well as... Uh, you know, putting the shoe on, putting it on the other people. They had to watch out what they were doing, too. Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And, of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Vault podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And, of course, they just hit the milestone, 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Phil Parsons was hired going into the 1990 season for Morgan McClure Motorsports, but he lasted just three races. And as Larry mentioned, he did tear up some race cars during races and in practice. And Steve, at the time, there were rumors that Phil had some substantial problems with his eyesight. Well, I stood right there in the Richmond garage area after Phil crashed the car and it was brought back. I stood right there behind Phil and Larry. Phil looked at Larry and said, what happened? And Larry didn't say anything. He's just looking at the car, rubbing his chin. And then Phil turned to Larry again and said, what happened? And Larry snapped, go to the medical center. He said, go. And Phil dashed off. Now, at that particular time, I'd heard the rumors about Phil's eyesight. And I actually talked to him about that and wrote a column about it. But the reason I wrote the column was that Phil was going to be relieved of the ride just three races in. I thought that was very unfair. And I thought it was precedented by the loss of his eyesight, the rumor of the loss of his eyesight, which you would explain more detail a little bit later on. But at the time I wrote that, Phil, was nothing wrong with his eyesight. Using that as an excuse to get rid of him. You know, I I said it was very unfair, and I was not very popular with Morgan McClure Motorsports or its fans at that time. For most of 1994, I was on retainer, 
at scene, which meant that I was to write two feature stories a month. And financially, Steve, that was huge for me because at the Allegheny News, I was bringing home the grand and princely sum of $150 a week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a start. And so the feature stories that I was doing for you guys, I could buy two packs of ramen noodles. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting up in a new income level, huh? Oh, man, that I was on easy street then. Well, I'll now, tell you something, Ricky. Uh, you were not alone. Now, I realized I started at the Martinsville Bulletin about uh, 20 years before all this. And I was only making $106 a week starting out. <laughs> One of the stories that I did that year in 1994 for scene was on field. And the one that I did appeared in the September 22nd, 1994 issue of Scene. And Steve, both he and his wife, Marsha, addressed all that talk about his eyesight. And they were pretty blunt about it. Phil did have a cataract removed from his left eye after the 1989 season was over. He wore a patch for 24 hours and doctors told him to stay out of a race car for a few weeks to give the stitching in his eye time to heal. Now, other than that, according to Phil, it was nothing more than a minor nuisance. But what people were saying about that procedure and about his eyesight, that was the problem. Now, Steve, I don't know the history of cataract surgery, but at that time in 1989, I don't think it was necessarily as prevalent as what it is now. So maybe that's what led to some of that talk. Well, I think you're exactly right, Rick. When he brought up the subject of the cataract, that answered a lot of questions to me about his eyesight. And uh, I'll tell you, Rick, when you wrote this story in 1994, remember I wrote the column back in 1990 in which Phil addressed the rumors about his eyesight. And of course, as I said, I thought that contributed to his loss of the ride to Morgan McLuhan. I didn't think it was very fair. Here we are in 1994, and you write this piece that covers every angle of it. I want to tell you something, Rick. In all those years, 90 to 94, not one single comprehensive report on Phil's eyesight ever appeared in any publication. You were the first to cross that threshold and make this a very, very interesting and compelling piece about a driver's situation. Steve, kind of what precipitated this story was the fact that Phil had come back. He had started his own Bush Series team, and he did win a race at Charlotte, I think in May of 1994. And Steve, Phil said in this story that I wrote in 94, he said, it's so sad that a rumor and innuendo can do the things it does. My eyesight when I had a cataract was 2015. My eyesight now is 2015. I had a cataract in my left eye and it did not affect my overall vision. That rumor was started and it just snowballed. I just never dreamed that the rumor would go as far as it did and damage my career to the extent that it did, but it did. So Phil was feeling that pressure. There's no doubt about that. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And how frustrating can it be for a driver to have something that is not true turn his career around and make it worse? 
that is what Phil had to say. But I also talked to Marsha, his wife, and she took up for her husband. And she said in this story, it has been hard for me to watch my husband have to go through that. Sometimes you feel like standing on a mountaintop when you've been overlooked and screaming, hey, look right here. Here he is. Here's what you've been looking for. That's not really in my personality to want to stand up and fight for someone, but I would do it for Phil. And I think that's a very good thing for her to say, because after all, uh, a driver needs support from his wife and his family. And clearly Phil was getting it. So whatever happened with Phil happened. And before Ernie got hired, he went to Atlanta for a test and Steve, it rained. And Ernie wanted to get in that car so bad, he, he got on a tractor himself with one of those big brushes on front and took off down the track, drying it himself. <laughs> that is dedication, wouldn't you say? <laughs> he got in the car, and he was bad fast, as Larry put it, and he got the gig for Atlanta at the very least. He goes to Atlanta with Morgan McClure Motorsports, and he finished third, and neither he nor that team were ever the same again. This happened after I wrote that column out of Richmond in which I thought that Phil had been treated unfairly and Morgan McClure should should not have done what they did. Well, it turns out, as I said, there were a lot of Morgan McClure fans not happy with me, and then Ernie turns around, gets in the car for the first time, and finishes third. And as you mentioned, had some very good runs out of that. And the team really starts to move into the spotlight. Now, I had to eat a whole lot of crow. (laughs) (laughs) But it happens. And when it happens, all you do is sit down and start eating. (laughs) Don't you you love it when stuff happens like that? (laughs) Not really, but it happens. Another trivia question for you, Steve. 1990 spring Atlanta race is a momentous event. Rusty Wallace finished second for Penske. Is a is a no. <laughs> momentous event in NASCAR history. Now, what took place that weekend that was so incredible? Has something to do with you, I'm pretty sure. That was the very first cup race I ever attended. How about that? 1990 in Atlanta, huh? Yes, sir. Well, what did you think? Well, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was cold and rainy and there was nothing going on to the racetrack until Sunday morning when the race finally got started. Well, do you have to sleep in your car? No, 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 no. That was during my fan days and we had a hotel and we were down there with Joey Stepp and his mom and my Uh, wife at the time. And we just had ourselves a big time. Uh, Good for you. Good for you. Ernie finishes third in Atlanta. They go and they sit on the pole. At Bristol that spring, which was the very first Bristol race that I ever attended. And then they win there in August in the night race. And not only that, Steve, but just a few months later, Ernie Irvin wins the Daytona 500. Now, for a team located just up the road in Abingdon, the Bristol win was a big deal. But then for that Abingdon team to go down to Daytona in the sport's biggest race, that was big. Now, well, you go from a team that is uh, basically struggling to start in 1990 uh, and you turn it around in that time frame and win the Daytona 500. 
that is a big step to moving into the elite class. And that is a far cry from what we saw just a few years ago. In Abingdon, there was at the time, evidently, a local hangout restaurant that people kind of frequented. And in Abingdon, Larry McClure's favorite place was a joint by the name of P.J. Brown's. And Larry could not wait to get to P.J. Brown's the day after that race to get him some breakfast (laughs) because his chest was going to be bowed out and he was going to be the Daytona 500 winner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was a big thing for him at that time. Absolutely. He's going to walk in that restaurant and be the biggest celebrity in the place. (laughs) (laughs) Larry McClure has P.J. Brown's in Abingdon and here in Hamptonville. We have Debbie's Snack Bar, and it is a legend, Steve. Debbie's Snack Bar. I got to go there sometime, Rick. Yes, you do. You got to order the hamburger. The hamburgers are about a foot tall. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I've never had one. Believe it or not, I've never had a Debbie's Snack Bar hamburger, but they are legendary. Well, that means I'm going to definitely have to go up there. (laughs) We'll split one. How about that? Hey, that sounds good to me. That sounds awesome. So, Ernie Irvin, Swervin Irvin. That's right. <laughs> you know what's coming next. Yep. From the very beginning of his tenure with Morgan McClure Motorsports, Ernie Irvin was courting controversy. At Darlington, in just his second race with the team, he got together with Ken Schrader. There's this huge pileup in which Neil Bonnet was injured. And, Steve, he was injured to the point that he was out of racing for more than three years. Yeah. And Steve, at the time that Ernie was racing Ken Schrader so hard, Ken Schrader was on the lead lap. Ernie Irvin was 10 laps down. Yeah. And you could have, you should have seen the reaction in the press box when that accident happened. I mean, it was, first of all, it was real quiet when we saw the accident. And we did not know how badly injured Neil was. But anyway, so it was real quiet. And then some guy said, where to go, Ernie? Out loud. And then everybody else said, yeah, yeah. We knew that was a dumb thing to happen. Ernie Irvin said in the April 5th, 1990 issue of Winston Cup scene, I didn't think Schrader would race me that hard. I cut down low under him and away it went. We ran side by side a couple of laps. And I know you're not supposed to do that. But I just got loose and spun, and Ken spun too. It was just hard racing. Now, Steve, I got to put that one on Ernie. I really do. Because if he's that far down, he's definitely not going to win the race. And like you said, Rick, when you're 10 laps down, why are you racing hard side by side with another guy, especially at Darlington? There's no way you're going to win the race. To Ernie's credit, I will say this. That was so early in his tenure with Morgan McClure Motorsports. I'm going to go out on a limb and give Ernie at least a little bit of credit and want to think that maybe he was just trying to impress his new boss because Ernie was not that far removed from welding seats in the Charlotte Motor Speedway grandstand. So I can understand him not wanting to go back to that. And maybe he did in that instance, drive a little bit over his head, trying to impress his new boss. Well, I'll tell you what, Rick, as we're going to find out in just a few minutes, trying to express his boss may have been the causes of other accidents 
that were really needless. Uh, there's a limit to how much you want to impress your boss. 1991 spring race at Talladega. Ernie's in the middle of another multi-car accident that left Kyle Petty with a broken femur. And after that accident, fingers were again pointing at Ernie. Dale Jarrett said in the May 9th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup scene, Ernie is out of control, and you can quote me on that. I was just three or four cars back when it started. He moved over and tried to break into the outside line, hitting Kyle. He had done about the same thing to Davey about two laps earlier. Now, Davey said in this issue, he had no room and there was a mess. He was down in the middle and he didn't have any business being there. Now, finally, Buddy Baker said it was mighty early in the race to be hitting someone like that. NASCAR needs to tell some folks that they're not on a quarter mile track now. They're in the big leagues. You know what I mean. Well, in addition to trying to impress his owner, I think that time, by the time these incidents happened, that time should have been over. And now, part of the problem, in my estimation, is that Ernie has a lot of self-confidence in himself and more confidence in his car, which may have led him to think he could do almost anything. Well, as we find out, that's not very good. Finally. Ernie got together with Hutch Strickland at Pocono later that same year in 1991. That triggered a wreck that also involved Ricky Rudd, Ken Schrader, Bobby Hillen, Dell Earnhardt, Darrell Waltrip, Kyle Petty, Alan Quickey, and Richard Petty. Now, both Ernie and Hutt were able to continue. Hutt took fourth while Ernie was seventh. Hutt said that Ernie hit him coming out of the turn, but Ernie was like, just wait a minute. I didn't hit anybody. And he said, I never touched him. He had just knocked into me hard in the tunnel turn. If I'd spun out in front of the whole pack, I think I'd say what he said too. I spun out in the same place yesterday all by myself. Is he that much better that he can't do it? Everybody wants to blame somebody. If I'm within five cars of a wreck, it's my fault. Now to have a difference of opinion, on an accident is one thing, but that last statement, you know, if I'm within five cars of a wreck, it's my fault. Everybody wants to blame me. Right. That's, I think, kind of what maybe possibly sort of got him in trouble. I don't know, really, when you feel like you can do anything in your car, which I believe Ernie did feel at that time, that that can lead to these kinds of situations. And what leads to these kinds of situations, what are people going to think of you? And then when you know what they think of you, you're the kind of guy that stands up and says, well, if I'm anywhere near an accident, it's always my fault. He's starting to get the message, and he doesn't like it. The next race after Pocono was Talladega, and as Larry mentioned, he had a meeting with NASCAR, with Bill France Jr., with Dale Earnhardt, Darrell Waltrip, Richard Petty, and they basically were laying down the law and saying that Ernie was in over his head and in order to get back in the good graces of everybody in the garage, he needed to mind himself on the racetrack. And so Larry went to Ernie and said, you know, I think you might ought to consider making an apology. And Steve, to Ernie's credit, he did stand up in that driver's meeting and make this apology. I've talked to a few of the drivers this week and, um, some of the car owners and, um, you know, I've lost a lot of respect 
I've lost the respect of a lot of drivers and a lot of um, car owners in this garage area, and that hurts. Um, I've uh, drove a little bit over aggressive some. I'm going to work on trying to be a little more patient and want to earn everybody's respect back. I like to be um, liked in the garage area and um, appreciate maybe if you guys give me a shot at it. And I definitely want to be everybody's friend in here. We are going to talk more about Ernie's apology in the second segment, but Steve, what kind of reaction did his fellow competitors have to that statement? I think they respected him for it. Rick, you have to understand, in all the years that I've been in NASCAR up to that point, I had never seen a driver stand up and make an apology in a driver's meeting. I was there when Ernie did that. And, you know, he didn't receive a wild lot of applause from the other drivers, but you could see they were satisfied that he was making an effort. And that's exactly what Ernie needed to do at that point. Well, I think everybody there, we're going to take a wait and see attitude because that's, actions speak louder than words. That's right. And I think you're uh, really correct on that. But I do think that they respected him for doing it. Now, let's see if you go out and practice what you preach. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, Brian is just amazing with the stuff that he is posting. He has a museum of vintage racing apparel, and it's all available for his customers to pick up, and it's some just amazing stuff. There's stuff in there you have, I had forgotten ever existed. Unbelievable. The drivers, the competitors, the events are just, listen, I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. If there's somebody that you want a t-shirt of across basically any motorsports discipline, any concert t-shirt, any rock group t-shirt, country music act, whatever, Brian can get you hooked up eventually. <laughs> That's now, not bad. Now, I'm, he is still looking for me a Bobby Hill and Trap Rock Industries t-shirt. Now, that's something that he's not come up with yet. But I bet I'm, you he finds it. I bet you I, he finds it. I bet you he finds it, too. Absolutely. So, Steve, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's Speedway. TSJ.ETSY.com. August 1st, 1991, issue of Winston Cup Scene covered that year's second Talladega event. And Dell Earnhardt edged Bill Elliott by one and a half car lengths to capture his fifth win at Talladega and his third in the last four races. Dale said in Deb's race lead, it was a real strategy race. You had to look behind you as much as you did in front of you. There were a lot of cars moving around. The draft worked well, and we tried to stay in the top three or four. <laughs> you yeah. had to look behind you as much as you did in front That's of you. That's the key. That's the key. <laughs> there was a lot of movement going behind Dale 
that he had not seen before. Normally, you, I don't think telling Dave you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to hang on to the draft for as long as you can, and then when the time comes, try to make your move. But looking in your rearview mirror and seeing guys going up and down and around and so forth all over the place, well, that's got to give you a good feeling. Well, I think if I'm Dale Earnhardt, I'm not necessarily watching as a competitor trying to stay in front of them. I'm watching as an interested fan because <laughs> these guys were evidently just all over each other and not giving each other any room whatsoever. And allowing Dale to stay up front in this lead draft right where he wants to be because nobody used the draft at Talladega better than Dale Earnhardt. Dick Brooks said that guy could find air off a paper bag. <laughs> so he was where he wanted to be. Of all people, Dale had help from Ricky Rudd. <laughs> okay. Not exactly a pair of dinner out guys, I would say. <laughs> so it must have been big for Dale to be getting help from Ricky Rudd. Ricky said, Dale and I had a good thing going. He kind of left me hanging out there at the end, but he had to look after himself. They, meaning the Ford drivers, ganged up and finally got by me. He saw that they got by me and saw that they were going to overtake him, so he jumped out in front of them. He did what he had to do to protect the win. He jumped out in front, and I was sitting there hung out to drive, but he worked with me as long as he could. They had him beat on motor, something terrible. I don't know how he held them off. It was like they held back all day, and when it was time to go, they stood on it. Now, that was probably about the extent of anybody talking about Ford's teamwork that day because the Ford drivers themselves, uh, they were not happy after the race with each other at all. whole lot of uncooperating going on there. <laughs> there were six laps left in the race after the final restart. Dell was first, followed by Ricky. Then Michael Waltrip, Rusty Wallace, Sterling Marlin, Davey Allison, Bill Elliott, and Darrell Waltrip. Now, Dale basically stayed out in front while all heck was breaking loose behind him. At the checkered, Mark Martin was third, Ricky was fourth, Sterling was fifth, Rusty was sixth, Michael Waltrip was seventh, Davey was ninth, and Darrell fell all the way to 15th. So he didn't have a good day in that draft. Davey had Sterling and Bill lined up behind him. Sterling was driving a Ford for Junior Johnson and Associates, that number 22 Maxwell House car. Bill Elliott was still with Melling Racing in the cores, number nine. And Davey almost cleared Dale, but then Sterling evidently went his own way, and that was the end of that. Davey said, all we needed was four more inches, and we could have moved up in front of Earnhardt, and we would have had him. If you trust another four driver, and he's the only one you can really work with, or you're the only one that can work with him, and then they leave you hung out to drive, then that's pitiful. We were fighting with each other instead of working together. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, after the race, Davey is so mad that he punched the wall of his transporter and broke his hand. And if Davey wasn't happy with Sterling, Sterling wasn't exactly thrilled with Davey either. Sterling said, when you get in a deal like that, it's just every man for himself. When somebody you've made a deal with sees he has a shot to win the race, he won't hesitate to move back in line and leave you hanging. Bill Elliott stayed with me, but once that 
28 car got clear of Earnhardt. He shot out in front of him and I got hung out to dry. The Fords were supposed to help each other, but nobody would make it work. Now, Steve, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. This is Talladega and this is the draft. And although Davey and Sterling were both driving Fords, they weren't driving Fords for the same team. Right. How far does teamwork go in the draft? It goes as far as necessary to produce the results that are best for the manufacturer. In this case, we learned from Dave that he almost cleared Dale, all right, when their cooperation stopped. Now, Sterling said he pretty much got hung out to dry after Davey moved ahead a little bit. As a result of that, Davey couldn't get past Dale, and Ford loses. And Ford loses because the Ford drivers aren't cooperating long enough to put a Ford in the lead. And they're not happy with each other, and the Ford is not happy with them. Now, you're not supposed to see that when you work in a draft to take a lead around another maker. And that didn't happen. Yeah, I know they were both driving Fords, but Davey was driving a Ford for Robert Yates Racing, and Sterling was driving a Ford for Junior Johnson Associates. So, in my opinion, it's every man for himself in the draft, especially with the checkered flag almost in sight. So, I don't know what everybody's mad about. Ricky Rudd was driving a Chevrolet, and he understood that Dell Earnhardt needed to do what Dell Earnhardt needed to do to grab the win. So I don't know how far that manufacturer loyalty should go. Well, I think you make a very good point. And you are right. When it comes to going to the checkered flag, it is every man for himself. But when guys driving the same model car have a shot to take the lead past another manufacturer, normally you will see them do that. Now, even if it's on the last lap, and you're behind a guy who can take the measure of the Chevrolet, it's not in the books for you to mess it up. (laughs) I mean, I know it's every man for himself, but think about how that looks for a manufacturer when the opportunity to take the lead and win the race goes away because of the same manufacturer's car. I, 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 I can see where the frustration comes in. All right, so we got Davey mad. He's driving for Robert Yates. We got Sterling mad. He's driving for Junior Johnson. We also have Mark Martin mad, and he's driving for Roush Racing. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Martin wasn't happy with anybody after his third-place finish. He had had to make an unscheduled stop with about 30 laps left to replace a right rear tire that was going down, and apparently he didn't have any friends once he got back up to speed. Mark said in the sidebar, We had the rottenest buddy system in the world today. I don't think any of the four drivers would touch me with a 10-foot pole today. Maybe they thought I wasn't fast enough, but a lot of four drivers threw me in the river. Now, that I rest my my case. (laughs) (laughs) That last pit stop put Mark back in 12th place, and he continued. After that, it got pretty frustrating because nobody, but nobody would work with me. There at the end, A couple of Fords wanted to work with me, but I burned them all. Forget them. No way was I going to work with them. All (laughs) right, Mark. (laughs) Uh, Not a good day for Ford. (laughs) I burned them all. (laughs) 
And Steve, this was also the race where our buddy Rick Mass got tagged by Buddy Baker and flipped in the trial one. And then he slid on his roof for what seemed like it seemed like he slid on his roof for two miles. I mean, <laughs> he was on his roof forever. And then finally came to a stop with him still on his roof. Rick being Rick, he said after the race, I'm okay, except that I might need a new pair of britches after getting up. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing you think is, please stop. And then you think, please don't nobody hit me while I'm sitting there. Then you think, please don't catch fire while I'm trying to get out of here. I'll tell you, my heart was beating about 300 times a minute. And he did need those new bridges. (laughs) (laughs) The scene on the circuit section carried news that Coors would not be returning his Bill Elliott sponsor at Melling Racing, which only fueled speculation that Bill would be leaving at the end of the year to go join Junior Johnson and Associates, which is eventually what he did. That's exactly what he did. And then, Steve, there was also the item about Ernie Irvin's apology during the driver's meeting. It didn't exactly come as a shock that Felix Sabatis wasn't at a loss for words when it came to Ernie. He said in this SOC item, if you figure money lost from the winner's circle, the top 10 in points, and bonus money from Coca-Cola, along with the salary I'm continuing to pay Kyle and the portion of his medical bills I'm paying, Ernie Irvin has cost me about $700,000. Well, Felix does have a point. As a team owner, he took a perspective on the Ernie Irvin incidents that do involve money. Because as a team owner, what are you involved with most? And that's your income and your expenses. Well, these amounted to expenses that Felix felt like he didn't have to endure. Steve, it's one thing to be mad at a fellow competitor over getting banged up in an on-track accident. It's one thing to spend somebody coming out of the fourth turn on the last lap. But when you're talking about that kind of money, when you're talking about $700,000, that's crazy money. And that's exactly why Felix is upset. He's explaining it from a different point of view. Not the personal, not the professional, but the financial. And that is where it affects him the most. Felix continued in this item. He said, I realized that things happen on a racetrack. When Tommy Kendall drove our car at Sears Point, he drove it in relief of Kyle while Kyle was out with the broken leg. We wrecked Mark Martin. But Tommy went right over to Martin's team after the race, admitted his mistake, and said that he was sorry. Ernie has never said he was sorry, and now it's too late. Well, that's one man's opinion, and I said earlier, I can understand why he felt that way. Again, we're talking about finances here. That is a much different outlook to have. I'm Ken Schrader. You're listening to The Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, my little episode last week, almost getting run over, I actually took Friday off because I was just sore and everything. And then Saturday, we had the water in the basement, and the forecast called for rain all day. So I wound up not walking Saturday either, and I took my normal day off 
on Sunday. So I had three days in a row off and that cost me about 10 miles. So my current total, okay, my current accountability total is now 4,879.94 miles. I did 4.2 miles this morning. And if I had realized that I was that close to 4,880 miles, 0.94 0.94 miles. I believe I could have managed another few steps <laughs> and rounded that off to a nice round number, but that leaves me 120.06 miles short of 5,000. Well, Rick, you're getting there. And by the way, those three days off, man, they were well-deserved. You had to get your body back to function, so you had to take a break, but you made the most of it. One of the biggest reasons why I have been trying to build on and do a little bit extra every day is so I could have a little bit of a cushion. And so I didn't have to half kill myself to get to 5,000 by the November 6th through 8th race weekend at Phoenix, which is the deadline that I have. But luckily I did have that cushion and I was able to take some time off, but now I'm walking again. I walked again this morning and it felt so good because the weather, it was four or five degrees cooler. It was a very heavy overcast. There was a light mist, which made it so much cooler, so much more enjoyable. And I did have a little bit of rest. So this morning was the easiest 4.2 miles that I have done in a long, long time. So 120 miles to go. I should be in double digits by the end of the week. That's my goal is to be under 100 miles by Saturday. Well, Rick, if anybody can do it, you can. And you've got the rest you needed. Go for it. And after you get a text or something. You hear that? I'm sorry. I can talk. You're going to start over. (laughs) It's off. (laughs) Okay. All right.